0: Hello and welcome to a special edition, question mark, of Exit the Stage Door. Either way, I am your host, Aaron Teachman. Um, It's a special edition because this is out of order. We actually have another week before you would normally expect a new Exit the Stage Door. But I wanted to drop this conversation about Shakespeare Theatre company's production of Yale, Farber's adaptation of Oscar Wilde's Salome, because I wanted to give you a chance to buy a ticket and to go see it while you could. The show is currently running at the Landsberg Theater until November 8th. It's a a really rich production, and there's a lot going on um, in terms of the design elements in terms of the story being told in terms of the artistic intent and I really wanted to dig into that with some people I sent the call out on Twitter to see if anybody was interested in talking about it and I landed two really awesome people who wanted to talk about it who are also involved tangentially in the production uh so that was really really great i end up having a really fun conversation with hannah hessel ratner uh the audience enrichment manager at shakespeare theater company and rob montenegro uh who is a house manager as well as a writer playwriter, and dramaturg as well um you can look at all of their credits in the show notes that will let you know what these magnificent people are up to these days and uh yeah, they're great people. And I was, I felt really fortunate to have this conversation. And I felt the need to, to rush to get it up so that we could have a conversation about a show that you could possibly still see if you haven't already seen it. So, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, I present Hannah Hessel Ratner, Rob Montenegro, and myself discussing Yael Farber's
1: Salome. Enclosed space. And yeah. And it's, it's got those. Oh, yeah, the acoustic band.
0: Mm-hmm. I've never, I've, I've been here in this room, in the conference room, only a couple times. Like, late at night when we're doing some crazy changeover, and this is the only room that isn't completely full of gear. And I still have, that's the first time I noticed the Herschel. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Michael's looking down on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for the room, Michael. Um, we're squatting a bit, but that's okay. Um, there's a load in, so...
1: Yeah, I mean, there's nothing happening in this yeah. building, mm-hmm. I mean, in this part of the building right now.
0: Yeah. So, we are actually not here to talk about careers today, although I would love to do that with both of you at some point as well. We're here today to talk about Salome, which is currently being staged at the Landsberg Theater through November 8th. I believe they're not extending, that, so I think that's correct? That is correct. That is. Um, uh, with me is Hannah Hessel-Ratner who is the Audience Enrichment Manager with SDC? She's a freelance dramaturg and uh, an artistic enabler. I don't know. As, as oh,
1: I like that, <laughs> I like that. I'll take it, okay. sure.
0: And uh, Rob Montenegro, who is a writer, playwright, dramaturg and house manager, mm-hmm. just with STC or still a Studio? Uh, just with STC. Okay, and he poked his uh, head in with uh, when I was talking with Halverson, so. Oh, yeah. This is my second this appearance. This is his second appearance. Um, so quick question before I, I set up the table a little bit. How many times have have you seen the show?
1: All the way through? Uh, or a, in a, bits and a pieces?
0: Deep, a deep enough chunk to feel like you... Like an hour or more of it.
1: Well, it's only an hour and a half. <laughs> so. So. <laughs> okay, that's fair. 45 <laughs> um, minutes. Half. 45 minutes. Okay. I would say sitting all the way through or close to all the way through twice. Although one of those was the dress rehearsal that was two hours. Oh yeah. from then, I've been in the lobby listening and watching on the monitors like four times I think
2: now. Yeah, when you're in the Landsberg oh, lobby, yeah. the voices of God are <laughs> raining upon you, so so even if I haven't been in the space, I've been intimately familiar with the show. Right, with the words yeah. of the show, yeah. Um, it's hard
1: as a house manager to have time to sit and actually yeah. watch.
2: Right. But, yeah. But we got the monitors so you can see mm-hmm. things happening and you have the speakers so you can hear things yeah. happening.
1: I say I've been doing post show discussions, Mm -hmm. so you don't really want to be watching it from the house because then you'd have to navigate your way backstage (laughs) and like open the doors and close the doors and Mm -hmm. potentially anger actors. So Mm -hmm. I just hang out in the lobby. Uh,
0: Yeah, I probably so I came in for the last week and a half of the of the tech process. Uh, Various personnel in the lighting department needed someone to cover for them, so. I ended up uh, teching for Don, for Don Holder, the lighting designer, for one day, and then so I've seen the show probably four or five times in its entirety. Okay. Which is.
1: So are you still? No, no, no. Uh,
0: I've, I've moved on, and uh, uh, the new Jacob, Jacob ah, Ashton, yes, was yes. there. Now the new Jacob's there. So yes. <laughs> well, His when, name when, is the last Jacob. time. <laughs> <laughs> Her name is not Jacob. <laughs> when was the last time you saw
2: it all the way through?
0: Um, I saw it last. Tuesday.
1: Okay. Okay. So you you've seen it through a lot of changes. Yes. Time.
0: Yes. Which is which is interesting. I don't I don't know if we will get time for that, but that would be the process on this one is worth talking about. Yeah. Uh, I. I'm just going to assume that not everybody listening to this has actually seen the show, so we're just going to do a real quick, apologies, it is actually slightly scripted, <laughs> um, and unnecessary for the both of you, but um, Salome is uh, what I would call a recontextualizing, uh, maybe re-mythologizing, I don't know, we'll get into that a little bit, of an incident described in the Bible that many will be maybe familiar with. A young woman dances for her father-in-law on a special occasion, she pleases him and her mother uses the opportunity to silence a vocal critic of both her and her husband in the form of John the Baptist. This production takes that core story and washes it through the version of events conjured up by Oscar Wilde, and then adds quite a lot of post colonialist cultural critique <laughs> for good measure, among many other changes. This adaptation was by the show's director, Yael Farber. The story is told in fractured time, flacking back and forth between the power play between the Sanhedrin uh, pilot, Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler and Salome and John the Baptist, um, Salome being interrogated, and it is narrated by a nameless woman who could be seen as the aged version of Salome after the results of her decision to insist on John's death or possibly much more than that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, I think I hit the highlights. Is there anything else you wanna add to someone who might not have seen it?
1: One of the things that's interesting that you mentioned in the recapping is her mother, who is notably absent. Yes. From this version. That is very,
0: I was I was intrigued by that because Herodias is also interesting in the Wilde play um, because she, she is present, but the, they, the change in agency of, because in the Bible it's mother in law asking for the head, and in Oscar Wilde's play it is Salome doing the asking to her mother's approval. <laughs> but that's an important thing we'll get to in a second. Um, That's a bad joke. I wrote a bad joke, and I think I'm gonna skip it. But (laughs) please, (laughs) Um, there's a lot to talk about in the play, and I think the one thing I I wanted to uh, start with really quickly is uh, the history of the story itself, Mm -hmm. because and and the purpose of Farber choosing. Oscar Wilde play about Salome in the first place because it's a really minor Bible story <laughs> it's in two of the Gospels and they're like it's never more than like 15 verses to talk about it she's not actually named which is a which is something that comes up in the show um like right off the top of the show actually <laughs> yeah and uh intervening tradition has made Salome a figure of sort of um uh, She's looked down on as a slut, as a figure of, of sexual aggression, and you know we had another instance of an evil woman who is doing, uh, doing somebody, uh, an important man a bad turn. And this this production, I would say, or at least one of its goals was to completely strip that back and start kind of over, in a much more realistic vein. I think that's, or do, I mean, what do you what do you what do you think?
2: <laughs> there is that that aspect of. Uh... Um, assuming that what we know about Salome uh, is, is via powerful men who write history and, uh, and a, a lot of the stereotypes or the, the tropes that we associate with her such as the, the dance of the seven veils mm-hmm. yeah. or um, uh, the, the common reiteration of the story is that she was jealous or that she was spiteful and um, I think Yale's uh, intention is to to shine a light on things that are apocryphal for all we know right and uh, and offer an alternative like hey you know this is just as 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 reasonable as everything that Josephus said or right. um, moving forward yeah
1: right I mean I think that's exactly right that the aim is to take this character who is nameless in the Bible, is named by Josephus, who mm-hmm. was a contemporary, but who then gets transformed through a male gaze over and over again, and who's in the Bible also, you know, victim to a male gaze by being the dancer yes. or her stepfather. Um and to to say, okay, what else could this story be? Mm-hmm. If we were to tell this story in a different way, if we were to allow her to have a name, to have a voice of her own, what would she say? Um, and I just pulled oh. up this book because I know that it was a big influence mm. in terms of figuring out what that motivation was. Um, Yale was really influenced by the book Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth mm. by Reza Aslan,
0: mm-hmm. oh,
1: okay. um, which makes... Yeah the proposal that what Jesus and John the Baptist, and I haven't read the book so I'm just going off right. of what I've been told about it, though I've, I'd like to read it. It sounds fascinating. Um, but that what they were doing were political actions mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. than um, religious actions. Mm-hmm. And the, the way it was then interpreted and what it became was religious, but they were really responding to the Romans being in Judea as political actions right
2: yeah. it's fascinating I, I read the book actually a few months back so it was still in my mind and I hadn't read all the dramaturgy the first time I saw the show so I'm watching it I'm thinking this this feels like an adaptation of, of <laughs> zealot um, and it, it proved to be extremely useful because uh, having a base layer of the understanding of the uh, um, the politics of ancient Israel yeah. uh, which I mean, who doesn't have a very basic <laughs> understanding of the intricacies of, of, of Roman rule? Um, it was extremely useful as far as context goes, and uh, and a, a lot of the dramaturgy that we provided to the audiences to prep them for coming in and experiencing the show has been uh, related to offering the historical context mm-hmm. and um, and emphasizing that we uh, are presenting this story. Uh, separate from its religious connotations or its religious um, bindings.
1: Well, it's interesting because it feels that the story is a history story. I mean, it's in the New Testament, but it doesn't have anything spiritual about it, except that it led to the death of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is, you know, as a figure, is also a historical figure Mm -hmm. in that way, like, yes, he can be seen as a prophet precursor to Jesus and that's certainly the way the Bible describes him but really they're also describing his actions Mm -hmm. and he never speaks for himself in the same way that Jesus speaks for himself and Mm -hmm. preaches for himself Um, he was really an outsider and I think what Yael has done is looked at Salome through this lens of you know what? What could this girl have meant? It's a huge action to ask for someone's head, mm-hmm. and you don't do it just for fun, for frivolity, right. um, and you know only if you're Oscar Wilde do you do it be, for sexual longing, for right. a desire. You yeah. know <laughs> only if you're in a nineteenth-century opulence <laughs> is that going to happen? So what could this action be? Why would they want him dead? Why wouldn't they want him dead? Um, and is it possible that a female figure could be the catalyst for future action, rather than making it just male figures right. who become yeah. catalysts?
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's also interesting because the play—I mean, Oscar Wilde's play—is extremely weird. It's—it's um, it's all full of voices from the sky and seduction and very expressionist sort of oblique language that it's not about like character arcs, and the, the story builds accidentally and very slowly so and i'm not i'm not saying that farber's production is necessarily straightforward either but it is actually on a certain on the fundamental level that we're talking about now historia well historically um and culturally, it, is, it strives for a much greater authenticity mm-hmm. than anything. Wilde Wild didn't yes. care about any of that.
2: There's much less hocus-pocus. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Which yeah. I found very fascinating. Um, and one of the consequences of that choice, or, or one of the choices that she makes, I think, as a result of that shift to authenticity is the casting, uh, which is primarily um, middle East actors who are...
1: Well, so it's interesting because it's actually there are actors who have Middle Eastern heritage. Right. There are Israeli actors, yeah. and um, the man playing Yohanan Ramses is Syrian particularly yeah. from a specific part of Syria that supposedly John the Baptist was from. Um, but coming into auditions, and I, I know this from um, a discussion we just did with Yale, she was asking not for actors from the Middle East, but for actors who... Have lived in political fault lines. Oh, interesting. She was really interested in people who knew what that um, the challenges of land, political um, war. You know that these are that she was looking for an emotional truth, mm-hmm. yeah. not necessarily a right, historical right. truth. Right. She was looking for people who would understand emotionally what the situation was. Um, and so, what you end up having is, you know, Olwen, whose plays the nameless woman, is Irish, um, and gotcha. she mm-hmm. has that story as part of her heritage. Mm-hmm. But it's a different version of it than, um, you know, one of the then right. Ramsey's is playing Yochanan, or, or yeah. Nadine, who I believe has Middle Eastern heritage, but is Australian. Mm. I mean, it's very, yeah, it's a very broad. Um, cast from kind of all over the place but that was the the gotcha. main yeah. idea. And,
2: and of course Yale being South African as right, well Right. and yes. it was so prevalent in Miss Julie a few years ago mm-hmm. uh, which we presented here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that universality of uh, conflict and who who owns who and this is all very uh, post-colonialism 101 but, yes. but it is um, at the at the crux of of what the presentation is in the show absolutely i think primary i think the
0: first 30 40 minutes are is primarily a crash course slightly <laughs> dramatized of post-colonialism 101 <laughs> yeah um, well I mean, we just, right,
1: and then, I mean he has this moment where he says yeah. this is how you control yes. people this is how you oppress the people you yes. like tighten the circles around them i mean that is and exactly
2: bring seldom civilization
1: yeah <laughs> I mean, I, I think the other... What was I going to say? Oh, train of thought, train of thought. I've lost
2: I mean, it. Okay, well,
0: in the meantime, one, one of the reasons I was bringing up the the Middle Eastern descent, and more, most importantly, was the fact that Yocanon only speaks Arabic. Yeah. And not, not even Aramaic or Hebrew, but Arabic.
1: But he's speaking, actually, a classical Arabic. So he isn't oh, okay. speaking an everyday okay. variation. Well, so it, it's a heightened, um, mm-hmm. poetic Arabic. It's not... The way he speaks, walking down the street. right. <laughs> it's,
2: it's one of the questions I get most. I, I, being the house manager, I interact with a lot of the patrons mm-hmm. that come out, and one of the the questions I get the most is usually from folks who speak Arabic. I go, "Was he speaking Arabic?" Oh, it's, it's. I guess it's similar if somebody were speaking Middle English right. on the stage, yes. and then somebody who speaks English goes, "That sounded. I can understand sort of." Interesting.
0: And,
2: and uh, an, another. Fascinating question that we always get in the discussions. I don't know if it was one of them that you did um, uh, There was no word for Jerusalem in in whatever Arabic he's, he's speaking mm-hmm. So uh, and if you know more about this you can correct me if I'm wrong um, uh, But one of the, the talkbacks or one of the, the discussions was Uh, A whole bunch of folks who probably spoke Hebrew were saying, you know, I kept hearing the word for Jerusalem in Hebrew out of his mouth or being spoken or in in the the songs. And there's that that melding of language because that was what they used in lieu of nothing because there was no word to describe it.
1: Well, it's interesting because there's actually a lot of blended language, like there are little bits of Hebrew and little bits of Arabic. Uh Um, in the the guards and you know they throw in words here and there that are both Arabic and Hebrew words that are used by both so there's there's a lot of the kind of blending of, of languages which is actually if you go to the Middle East today that's mm-hmm. what you will hear you know the slang of Israelis is partially Arabic and the pidgin language it, is yeah. you know how, how can you not blend these languages together
0: which but, is also one of the process like of colonization is yeah. Is, is attempting to institute a language and a form of resistance is but, often.
1: But it's interesting. And I don't want to start, you know, getting into the politics of the Middle East, but what's happened <laughs> in Israel isn't that. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I just want to be clear that, like, oh, yeah, what, okay. what has happened is actually the, what I'm saying is that the opposite of that, that Hebrew as a language has taken oh, yeah. in Arabic rather than, like, forced Oh yeah, it often
0: backfires, um, it, it, or has unintended consequences. Which I think it, part of part of the sort of political setup of the play is, and something that I i I'm, I think it handles mostly very well um, is depicting the the conflict between it, that it's that is never simply an overpowering colonizer and the simple oppressed. Mm-hmm. You have the, the people who submit to oppression in order to maintain their own status, and it's people who submit to oppression in order to preserve their own mm-hmm. cultural heritage, yes. and the ways that, that the compromise that they make and that way that plays out in their own consciousness, I think is ultimately um, the part of the authenticity that they're looking for. This is the lived inness of, of what choices do you have when this is the situation that you exist in.
1: Right. When you care about your land and you care about you know, maintaining your own power, what are the things that you will allow when you have been overpowered by an outside force?
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. how far pragmatism goes. The, the characters who represent the Sanhedrin in the, the show, um, they're the, the...
1: The priests. Yeah, the high priests. Yeah. And,
2: and they are... It's, it's fascinating because there's certain tiers of uh, leadership characters among the, the Hebrews and each of them is in bed with Rome a little bit more than the last and there's very degrees of how uh, complicit they are and and like you said the first 30-40 minutes is that crash course on here's what the historical context is um the there's so much nuance in it it's never just uh here comes the big bad guy and here comes the person they're either going to fight or they're going to give in the 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 multiple layers there yeah is uh it's uh, key to what follows in in Salome's decision um, trying to either rally everybody around one goal or how do you say um, the the, there is power in unifying Mm -hmm. whereas all the fragmentation and the the segments of, of population that are not aligned. Uh, it's part of what keeps them oppressed.
1: Well, and the fact that there's weak leadership. I mean, King yeah, Herod yes. is especially in yeah. this portrayal is hardly, is not at it's all not effective, effective yeah. as mm-hmm. a leader. That he is really just a puppet of Rome, and happy to be in that position, and happy to drink. And the only thing he has power over is Salome's body.
2: Yes,
0: right, which becomes a pretty potent symbol of. The, of the situation of the Jewish people in general, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So I think, you know, if we were to go back in time, there had been a different <laughs> leader than Herod. You know, maybe things would have been different. But I mean, it's also the the strength of Rome at the time. I mean, Rome yeah. more so than any colonizer. I mean, even I think more so than the British Empire. Rome decimated civilizations. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And did it by assimilating them and by saying, we are going to give you better than you had. Um, And it's what I find really fascinating watching the interactions between Pilate and the Sanhedrin is this idea of the the priests being like, well, we don't care. You know, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, you want to give us better. We don't want it. We've got the temple. What more could we want? Mm-hmm. We need to make sure we maintain this temple, which is why, you know, less than 100 years after this event, the temple gets destroyed. And, mm-hmm. and that, you know, of course, is what changes Judaism and kind really? of jumpstarts Christianity even more, creates this gulf um, that yeah, it, ends up getting filled.
2: Aslan says a lot in his book that uh, the Romans would go and folks would kneel and, uh, and the Hebrews... Were just the the stubborn ones. They wouldn't do it, and and they were the ones there. They were the the ones that cracked Rome, or maybe not cracked. We still Rome. are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The one, the ones that. Uh,
1: I mean, make, and, you know. and I don't mean that actually as you know a joke. I mean, we the fact that Judaism is still around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It it has to do with that sense of you know, it would be so easy for us to give up as a religion. We've got yeah, yeah. no power. We've got no numbers compared to Christianity. Like, we could have given up after pogroms. We could have given up after crusades. We could have given up, you know, after massacre, after massacre. But we don't.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and the reason, I mean,
2: lots <laughs> i lots mean, of reasons. It's yeah. tradition or whatever. Don't but, but, but the reason, this you podcast. know,
1: in part is this relationship with God. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the idea that that is more important um, yes, well, it's fascinating to
0: me. And one of the fascinating things about this production for me was how um, how explicitly Jewish it is. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, and there's, a, there's real attention to detail in the priest's garments, the way that their hands are stained with blood. Only one hand because of the way that the rituals were, and they they have a they brought in a movement director, and I'm sure it was uh, in, in concert with the allies as much as anything. A choreographer for because everybody's on stage almost all the time. Um, I would I think actually all the time. Um,
1: there are a couple of yeah. I mean even the off stage is kind of on stage. There are no right. way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um, so they the way that their presence is maintained when they are not the focus is often poses or gestures, which I'm, which are interesting. I don't, and I was, that's a question that I have. I don't know how much of that is informed by, I,
1: I I think very, the the only thing that's struck me as being extremely, obviously informed by Jewish tradition is the, the blessing of um, the priestly blessing, which is the hands that we recognize from Spock, (laughs) um, because of course Leonard Nimoy yes. was very Jewish. So the priestly blessing they do yeah, at okay. one point, and that is something that has been passed down from temple days. So mm-hmm. that's you know something that I think is very connected historically um, and rooted to that type of prayer. Um, it's interesting, the garments, so they have their arms wrapped mm-hmm. in what look like tefillin, um, but aren't to fill in because to fill in are one arm and have a box that's next oh, to the yeah. heart mm-hmm. and it has a headpiece with a box that's next to the head. Um, so it's interesting because you know some audience members are like, oh, it's obviously to fill in, and others are like, oh, well, I thought it was like Roman, you know, wrapping, oh, yeah. uh, um, like soldier wrapping, that yeah. it, it feels more military than religious. So I think it's supposed to evoke both sides yeah, of that. Yeah, evocative was the word I was going yeah. to
0: come in with. Yeah. Um, but so other there are, that there that are a bunch I, of things in this play that are like near what you think they should be, yeah. but are not actually like word-perfect th- yeah. thing that you think it is. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I would say, so the, the things that feel most Jewish to me about this production is, one, the prayers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The first prayers, the first things you hear from the priests... Are then doing the plagues, the ten, the plagues. Oh, okay. At, yep. Because um, we're introduced Passover. that it's near Passover. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like to give us a sense of t- so the time. So, if you are familiar with the Hebrew of those plagues, of listening to them every year at Seder, <laughs> then all of a sudden you know exactly where you are in in the timeline. And right. so then when they say a couple of minutes later it was near the Passover feast, you're like, well, I knew that, you know, <laughs> which is kind of. It's, it's rare, as a Jew, to have a, a heads up in a production. would be like, yeah. Oh, yeah, I got that one. Um, so that was nice. Uh, but the other thing that I think is really Jewish about it, and I'm curious what you both think, um, is I feel like if this were a more, in quotes, Christian production, oh, yeah. there would be a sense of salvation at the ending that is not in existence. That I feel like if this were something that was built by an artist who is Christian and who wants to make a case about Salome as a Christian figure, then her action would lead to Jesus and a sense of redemption. And that is not there. I mean, there are little references to Jesus here and there, but not as any sort of savior or Messiah, um, because there are references to both Messiah and to the carpenter. Mm -hmm. And I think people who are Christian hear Messiah and they think Jesus, but for from a Jewish point of view you hear messiah and you just think messiah right. mm-hmm. um and and i feel like the ending would have been different but instead it ends and this is a spoiler alert i've <laughs> seen it yeah. beyond the cutting off of the head which is the obvious spoiler alert it ends with a mention of the destruction of the temple yes which is you know the most tragic point in right. jewish history um, and so i just find that fascinating that i think if, if it had been a different artist who wasn't Jewish that it would have ended in a different way
2: and definitely it's it's very much uh, we're looking at the historical Salome rather than the uh, the biblical Salome because it's it's something that uh, aslan does in his book which I, I see very vividly in Yale's work on this show is saying we can't we can't f- take what we have in the Bible as as uh, face value, and instead of because you're, you're reading the story through the Bible, even if you're trying to look at it through historical context, right. you, yes. you're kind of just surrounded by all the the biblical aspects of it. Whereas uh, with with Salome in in this show, she's she's very much a political or a revolutionary figure. She's much more Joan of Arc than. Uh, Ruth or any other uh, mm-hmm. old old religious figure um, she is uh, uh, she is a, uh, a, a facilitator of, of the revolution is is what she's she's doing in, in in giving her the autonomy as Yale did is the reimagining of the historical context of the show. So uh, I, I agree with you that that to have, to have at the very end it be and then Jesus came and everything was great mm-hmm. would, would be to sort of have betrayed the first 100, 110 minutes of the show. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: so it's one of the things that I find fascinating about um, theology, I guess, in general, is or, or specifically Judeo-Christian theology is you have, I mean, you said remythologizing, um, and the New Testament is in part mythologizing. I mean, it's a little fan fiction. <laughs> but, or, or maybe historical fiction is actually a better, it's, it's fan historical fiction. For sure. Because there are a lot of ways where it is a historical document, where it does and, relate uh, mm-hmm. true facts that are verifiable from other sources as well, and is, you know, a document that can be looked at. And then it goes off into you know the kind of more apocryphal and, and the fantastical you know, in other parts. Um, and then the Hebrew Bible, because it is so much older, you know, the, a lot of these things are not historically factual. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, I mean, I'm not going to. I don't want someone to call thousands up of years of different like, actually, there, yeah. it is all true. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it feels to me that the Hebrew Bible is more of a mythology. Mm-hmm. And because of that, as someone who has an interest in Judaism and in the progression of Judaism, the New Testament is, for me, a source material to learn about ancient Judaism. And when you strip it of the you know, fan fiction part, in my mind, sorry, Christians, <laughs> then it, it really does serve as a, a document of what was happening at the time? Oh, yeah. what, what is the story of this part of the world at that time?
2: Well, it's like the, the joke, who is the most famous Jew in the world? Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, so, much of, so much of what we're looking at here is because is, uh, the, 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 the John the Baptist and the alluded to Jesus we get in, in this show are uh, Jewish rebels, Jewish revolutionaries, mm-hmm. Jewish dissidents.
1: Right, that word "zealot" actually comes mm-hmm. from this time, uh-huh. um, and it's—I've been thinking about this a lot with what's happening in the Middle East with these um, uh, stabbing attacks. Oh yeah, which really are what the Jewish zealots were doing. Oh yeah, they were going out into crowded spaces and stabbing Romans, and so it's really interesting historically to look at that from a distant, lens of distance, and it's really depressing to think about it from. Mm-hmm. Right? A current events standpoint but it's it is fascinating that that is the notion of zealot is the 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 ones who are so angry and, and wanting to revolt um, yeah.
0: yeah I think uh, one of the things that the one of the things that the play really accomplishes is by restaging and reminding contemporary audiences of just how revolutionary the persistence of judaism was like and and what that means for oppressed people as an oppressed people what this isn't i don't think that this play is supposed to be just about jewish oppression it yeah. is supposed to be about what is valuable to the oppressed what choices do they make yeah. and how do you celebrate choices which i, I think I think that element of it is really important because the ending, which doesn't quite work for me, um, I have to admit, I think it's just a little too long. I know it's important to get to the the destruction of the temple. It irks me just a tiny bit that there's a 30-year gap between when John the Baptist would have been dead and when this revolution was supposed to happen, so it's kind of hard for that to be a spark. But I get where she's going. Um, And the, the important thing is, I think what she's trying to say, at least how it reads to me, is that the value of of Salome's revolutionary act was not that it led to change rome returned rome always does yeah, which is a exactly. very powerful line
1: it and is, not only that everything she did is erased yes. her name is taken away right. from her and yeah. she is buried under the city like it is a stripping of it, it is the opposite of a of a hero Heroization. Yeah, right, and exactly.
2: Pilot lets her know exactly too. He's like, hey, if you did this for glory, it's not going to happen. We are going to bury your name in the dirt. And I think he says, we're going to put you in the sea. And yeah. No one will never know.
1: And they cut her tongue out.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that's not staged.
0: Uh, I wish that was staged a little more clearly, but yes. Um, I'm sure Nadine appreciates
2: that her tongue is still in her mouth, though. Well, it, well he does <laughs> it to all Yeah, he does it to, all, to the nameless woman. Yeah.
1: Which is just in terms of I just think it's really interesting that, yes. that she is narrating without a tongue You know, if she yeah. is this historical or this future version or this ghost-like version, she is telling this story um, and I, I should say she mentioned, or mentioned during the discussion this past weekend, that she is not narrating, so I, I am oh, yeah. sorry for yeah. using that word um, but she is telling her story right. without help. That it's this this will to get this story mm-hmm. told. Yeah, she's not
2: the the physical. Manifest or she's not the physical someone she's some sort of manifestation of what she is
0: of the revolutionary spirit that inspired
2: her i guess you could argue
1: yeah and one of the things that has been brought up at a couple of the post-show discussions that i totally would not have gotten on my own and so i'm grateful to the audience members who mentioned it um when she's buried she's buried under the holiest of holies in the temple she is buried in this sacred spot that women are not allowed in that only the high priests are allowed and and to be a high priest you have to be from a specific family. You you know, there's a very closed number of people who would ever have been inside this holiest of holiest space and she is underneath it. Um and people have remarked about how that is like finding her, her peace and that is her um that is how she is found kind of a spiritual Mm -hmm. place is that she is now and i think people have you know expanded this out she is now the spiritual life underneath jerusalem Mm -hmm.
0: well there's a lot of there's a lot of tradition it's almost certainly not fact but there's a lot of tradition that says that's where the ark is ark of the covenant has been hidden was underneath the holy holies of the new temple
1: yeah, there's also a tradition that says it's in Ethiopia. Yeah, well, there's. A t- yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> we all know where the ark of Covenant yeah, it right.
0: is. Top, it's in DC. We're men. here. Yeah. top men.
2: But I mean, I,
1: th- I think you know what is certainly still clear is where the holiest of holies supposedly was yeah. is now the most a mosque. Right. It is now the most conflicted space. Oh yeah. In the world, and the idea that there are nameless people. Underneath it that there are so many stories because I think it goes beyond the story of Salome There are so many stories Mm -hmm. that can't be told that are just buried in all of our histories And they kind of lie underneath these wholly contested spaces
0: I think what's it what's interesting about postmodern efforts to to um, Especially when you deal with poststructuralism, which is a return to the text and um, post-colonialism, um, is that you got the most important work that you begin with is demystification, is let's don't interact yet to start with, with the tradition of the interpretation. Let's go all the way back. Let's take the language back to only what was initially said, and then work our way back to where we are now from there. And I think that's what she does here quite but a bit. How,
1: but how can you do that? Well, I mean, yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean, you, you can question that model for sure, but...
1: Well, and especially, I mean, I, I would say in terms of that's what she did, I don't think that's what you she know. did. not know because because those things were all written by men.
0: Well, that's true, for, for sure.
1: And so I think what she did was, you know, she looked at some of those, but also in her sources is Sumerian poems yeah. or Song of Songs. Yes. And Song of Songs, um, there are... Ideas that it was potentially written by a woman, sure, yeah. and, and that it was you know not Song of Solomon, right. but but song maybe of Solomon's wa- one of Solomon's right. wives or, yes. or something or like Sol- that. Solomon <laughs> 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 Well, that's right. what I think that's is so great about. So, but it's not. Sorry, it's it's not going back to the text and stripping it down and saying what is true in this text. Oh no, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's actually going to the text and saying what is wrong in this text. Right. What is missing? Where yeah. are the gaps?
0: But she is going like the the text, and that's that's what she's after. The text is there. Like we're we are skipping straight into the text. Much of the much of the dialogue in this play is from parts of the Bible reassembled and rearranged in this new purpose with a new agent.
1: Yeah. Well, and the Sumerian poem.
0: Which sure. Yeah. yeah. Poem I mean, there there are a lot. There's is. clearly a lot of influences But it, I
1: here. mean, I think that it's it's fascinating, actually. That poem, and and I haven't gone back and, and read the whole thing, and I probably should, um, but it's a poem about the god goddess Ishtar, I think, mm. going down into the afterworld, um, and so it's not a Jewish reference, and it's not a Christian reference, but it's a reference of that place, mm-hmm. um, and it's an even more historical reference, and it has such a place of prominence in. The play. I mean, this is for those of you who have seen it, um, and to to give a little bit of information for those who haven't, this is it's a poem about the gates. She. I was wondering where that was from. Yeah, the seven gates, and with each gate she has to remove an article of clothing, and so it serves a function to get her naked to then go into the baptism, Um, but it. And it also has of course seven and gets her naked via seven different things right. which can then relate to dance of the seven veils but it is this much more um ancient uh text and it's not a text that would be familiar to you know your everyday right. jewish or christian audience so you're
0: saying sumerian or sumerian
1: oh uh <laughs> Sumerian. It sounds think, Sumerian right? to me. Sumerian. Yeah,
2: rather, yeah, rather than the Mount we can Sumerian. Yeah. It Sumerian, like s'mores. Put <laughs> the apostrophe where the vowel should be. Um, there was oh, one.
1: Maybe Assyrian. Assyrian. Sorry. Oh, I'm okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, Sumerian. Yeah. Sumerian.
2: I mean, that's
0: the. Yeah. yeah, yeah connected. Yeah. yeah. I, I think there's one. Uh, so we're 40 minutes in. <laughs> one more thing I, w- I wanted to quick talk about, and then I would like to transition to actually the a actual, uh, little bit more about the staging of the production because it, it's 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 a designed show and I think uh, it would be unfair to the staging to to not talk about it a little bit but as a Christian receiving this play I, I found quite a lot of it so I did make I, I, I don't know if it's a mistake or whatever but I read Oscar Wilde's play before going to see this and Oscar Wilde's play is aggressively transgressive to the Standards of what people would consider a play of the day. So I was walking in expecting something to be wildly aggressive. This play, by the way, is not. uh, um, So, (laughs) but that's that's my expectation was pegged at that. So when I when when you have John the Baptist speaking Arabic to in in a country full of white Protestants who who have. No experience of that language other than associating it with terrorists on TV or whatever. That's a, I don't think of it, that's not an aggressive act, but it is a transgressive act. It's a, a, it, it introduces an interesting element to it, Well, I would, contact. I
1: would say the majority of people watching it don't realize he's speaking in Arabic.
0: Oh, okay, well, that's fair. Yeah.
1: I think the only people who recognize he's speaking in Arabic are people who either mm-hmm. know Hebrew and Aramaic enough to know that that is, that is not what he's speaking, yeah. in, or know Arabic yeah, that's enough fair. to recognize right. language from it, or read our promotional materials or saw that he's a Syrian actor. Um, I think to the majority of audience members, there are other languages involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, that doesn't well, really answer your question.
0: Though, no, it's I, it, it wasn't the focus of it, because it's only one yeah. instance of uh, a, a recasting of something that a Christian would be vaguely familiar with, that, like, leaving Jesus out of it, it is a notable absence. Um, but is, it's interesting he's not entirely left out of it. Because
1: he's not entirely left out of it, and a lot of people I've talked to have been like, oh no, you, I mean, they mention the Messiah, this time, this time, this time, and I'm like, oh well, that's not... Okay. Yeah, no, and I'm Good thinking... Good point. That's your Messiah. Yeah, right.
0: But I'm thinking of Yeshua, the madman, mm-hmm. who yeah. tells the story of the 5,000. Yeah. Which is absolutely not... It, well, let me walk that back. That's that's something so you, I don't...
1: you see Yeshua as being Jesus. An echo. He, or he, echoing. He, he, well, I mean, Because so, there's that story, right? So there's yeah. the story of the fish. Right. And... Yeah. Okay. He
0: gets some of his prophetic mm-hmm. statements. He interprets for John the Baptist all the time, which mm-hmm. I mean, within the within the text that happens all the time. Like yeah. Jesus is Jesus and John's ministry are intricately related. Um, and he's I love that he's kind of a madman. Like that's the other thing that I think is really great about this. Like this is a this is a reminder again of how radical and uncomfortable. John and Jesus, and by extension Jesus later, but definitely mm-hmm. John, mm-hmm. made people. And, yeah. and American Christians don't sit... We have, the, we have the theology of... What is it Joel Osteen does? Oh, uh, the prosperity... Theology no. yeah. of prosperity yeah. exists in America as a thing. It's like, no, guys, this revolution against an, a doomed revolution by an oppressed people is much closer well, to...
1: Right well, it's really interesting to look at... Christian history and to see how that religion oh yeah the ark is yeah yeah. grown I think that's a really a really great point and I I think Joshua Yeshua the the fool the crazy man Mm -hmm. um is a a huge question mark for me when I'm watching Mm -hmm. I mean in some ways he's the voice of the people and that's certainly what I see him as a lot of the time he's he's the masses that aren't able to be on stage because all we see on stage are the main event you know we see the powerful we don't get any glimpse into mm-hmm. the everyday I mean the guards give us a little but they're also in this position of power because they are guards so in my mind he kind of is that he's yeah, in, he's yeah. the voice of the people mm-hmm. um so then it does make sense to me that he's recounting the sermons that he would have been hearing yeah. or that would have he been he would have been a target the audience of yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. for sure yeah,
0: yeah.
2: yeah. i like yeah. that you do you say that he's an echo cuz there in in the material it's explicitly stated that he's not jesus despite <laughs> the fact that his name is yeshua um, but i mean there's there're plenty of folks who come out of the show going well he's he's obviously jesus or he's obviously some amalgamation of jesus and and i think i like the word echo cuz because he he does represent that, like you, like you said, the 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 religion was was started or based around a bunch of to to the folks who were living around there a bunch of raving lunatics, and that's yeah. kind of what he is. And uh, yeah. and it's it's just uh, the yeah. There's not much else to say. Is yeah. <laughs> uh, it,
0: did did do we hit? everything that we feel like in the flow because I do want to talk about the design a little bit
1: I mean if not we can always circle can, yeah, back through flowing conversation, yeah, yeah, certainly
0: yeah. Um, because the, the two you talked about um, you talked about the baptism uh, briefly in dealing with the ceremony of the gates but leading up to that moment is, is her descending into yeah. the cistern where mm-hmm. John the Baptist is held which mm-hmm. is
1: it's gorgeous
0: an amazing moment and terrifying yeah Yeah. (laughs) Um, so Nadine backs onto a ladder which is being lifted
2: Mm -hmm.
0: turns around and is lit and just picked out as this absolute jewel in the air and Don Holder permeates the space with haze so the light isn't just illuminating her there's physical shafts of light yeah and then she descends it again. Right,
1: and the thing to note about the ladder, for those who haven't seen it, is that it goes from being held by actors to being (laughs) freestanding as it gets more and more vertical. It Mm -hmm. becomes a freestanding vertical ladder without Connection to anything. I mean, yeah. I've had people be like, "Are there? Is it somehow hanging?" And I'm like, "No, no, no it's." it's, it's, it's f- and, and if you look carefully, because I've done this because I like to know how things work, <laughs> like you can see the actors, you know, pushing yeah. something down. Like you can see that they're doing whatever they need to do. Two-foot steel plate or, on both legs. <laughs> there you go. Um, that it, you know, it is obviously a safe. Yes, a safe thing, but it looks like you said it looks terrifying and beautiful and wondrous.
2: Oh, and it's. It's almost bearing the lead to, to wait this long to talk about the, the theatricality of the piece mm-hmm. but this, the moments like that are the, the moments that are just so just a beautiful theater Yes, where, where you're sitting there and you and it's when you lose yourself and you look up and you go well I am aware that she's an actress and she's a member of the equity association so they're <laughs> not going to put her in danger okay. and uh, it, but at the same time you watch her descending and you you're just affected by all the lights and the sound and you with it that that is dangerous. Like there's some danger there, and and you feel you feel like you're you're helpless to do anything about it. And it's a really transcendent moment. And the piece is just filled with things like that. Yeah. Where and and it should be denoted that the when you walk in, and you look at the set. It looks like they forgot to build the set. <laughs> <laughs> you can see the back wall of the Landsberg. And it's all painted black, and there are uh, what appear to be stage. Uh, stage ops tools and things around laid about and then as you said the ladder is just it's very long like 15 feet long maybe yeah Yeah, and it's a big black ladder
1: and it's a table and it's yeah, all it sorts it of, a lot of yeah. things. because yeah. Yeah.
2: everyone's on stage and every
0: table and chair and interrogation moment all of the things for the story are contained on the stage in full view at all yes. times and, and well except for the veils which are a surprise yeah And then then the sand. And the sand. Which is why one thing I wanted to talk about ever so briefly. Because the first time that I saw this, um, they let us, it it was very early. I think it was like the second or third preview. And I was in the house. And so basically, what you have, the structure of this play is that you've got an introductory few minutes um, as Nameless just sort of sets the scene. And, and we get and we get like glimpses of Pilate interrogating her and we start and we get Nadine out into her chair um and then we get to Jerusalem and the entrance to Jerusalem is this explosion of music a shift in color temperature mm-hmm. and lots of sand creating a wall a sense of sort of a like if it were water um, it becomes a surface that catches the light in such a fascinating way And And it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming for so long. It's a great moment. And that was when they chose to late seat. (laughs) So the first time I saw the play, I did not see that moment because of the three people who were being seated in front of me.
1: But okay, so here, I mean, I don't know if you have thoughts on the late seating, but I think that it makes sense as a late seating moment
0: narratively speaking absolutely
1: well narratively speaking and sound wise yes because you're not gonna miss anything except for the visual right like if you turn around because someone's coming in rather than having someone come in while they're in the middle of the political conversations (laughs) which you need to be paying attention to or else you're completely lost
2: and you're not going to hear the poor septuagenarian late seater, i can't find my seat Mm -hmm. oh poor thing
0: it's just one of those fun well it's not always fun for everybody involved i'm sure for house managers in particular but it's one of those like Tactical nitty-gritty details about theater. Yeah, I got to figure
1: out when do you do that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, initially, initially she didn't want there to be any any late seating break, and and our my my boss said, well, that's that's there's uh, no way that's not realistic. (laughs) uh, I don't I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but uh, (laughs) I will say this anyway: is that uh, because and is very precise with the work. Mm -hmm. It's obviously her 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 she cares about it very much. Um, we have pushed back the start time of the show, yeah. unofficially, mm-hmm. so that we, you know, a lot of the patrons in this town like to go. But on, shows never start on time. I'm, but here at, at STC, I, we are intent on starting at the time it says on the ticket. I try very hard. And and it it kind of goes against what we're what we're told yeah. and what we're we're trained yeah. to do to intentionally start at 7:35 rather than 7:30. But the amount of folks that arrive just jumping out of the metro or yeah. had trouble uh doing their check at dinner things like that uh you get a huge or went r- to the harman instead yeah. uh, oh my gosh half of them <laughs> uh that window you get so many folks that shuttle yeah. in and and it's when we do that late seating break initially we were doing it at uh, 7 40 for a seven thirty show and we were bringing in uh, around a dozen people or more, and it was in- incredibly distracting and yeah. and criminal to everybody who sit who, who bought a ticket near the rear and who misses right. that scene, as you mentioned. So part of the logic or part of the thought of pushing back the, the time is that we wouldn't have to do as much of that. and it's proven to be pretty good. Yeah. We've also That's good. That's we've good. also made sure that we're selling the last seats that we mm-hmm. sell are near the rear so that we can late see people there. Um, but as 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 you mentioned, it is that narratively and sound wise, a great place to late seat. Um, it's also just really easy to find. Usually, <laughs> usually our late seating breaks are something like, all right, and you tell the ushers that our ushers handle our late seating. Mm-hmm. We, we hand them uh, we couple a patron with the late seating usher, and we'll say, all right. So when um, uh, when Oberon says the word, therefore that's when you need to seat them, and you have five seconds to do it, or else. <laughs> okay. that's, it, that doesn't yeah, work. So it's was <laughs>
1: being really nice. Yeah, yeah. You so it's, very so it's, clear, it's much cute. easier
2: to say, so when you see a brilliant cascade of sand falling upon the stage for about 40 seconds, glimmered by light, and engulfed in music, and the turntable is spinning, and it's a beautiful spot. that's when you can take them to their seat. <laughs> yeah. and,
1: uh, I want to say two more things about the design. Um, one was the comment that I really enjoyed from someone after the show who came up to me and said you know I've been going to a lot of women's voices festival shows and a lot of them have really boring sets because people are like oh it's you know the slot that we had to do and you know we've spent all this money on a new play so let's make it simple and not spend a lot of money he's like and I came in and I was like oh god another boring set and then he's like and then I saw what the set did (laughs) So, and he was very pleased. Yeah. Um. And then the other comment, you had talked about the haze. And I would say the music does the same thing. Mm. The music is like an aural haze where you're just... It's just buzzing in your ear, the, these two voices, yeah. these, these women on stage singing with their amazing voices. They're incredible. <laughs> and I believe one of them is Israeli and one of them is Middle Eastern. I forget from mm. where. So it's also just a really... Interesting combination, and in the the sound is very Semitic, um, and it's just yeah. It is, oh, it is shivers an it's experience. Gorgeous.
2: Yeah, I, if we have time, I'd love to to mention your first point just a little bit because uh, this being our Women's Voices. Oh yeah. Uh, one of the things I'm most proud about about this, and I have to say this with the I am a heterosexual man who's going to make a, a, a note about the Women's Voices Theater Festival. <laughs> Uh, so sorry. A lot of them have done yeah. so. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. but I think I'm going to do it from a feminist bent here, and that we took a huge risk with this production, handing the keys to Yale and say we believe in your vision, and she has a very, um, a, a very, uh, how do you put this in in a in, a, in a good way? Because I don't want to step on any toes, but like this is. This is a very uh, I feel like it's in the spirit of the festival. It's a, It's a, a, a woman auteur, basically uh, mm-hmm. who, who has written or adapted and directed and conceived this piece. and it has this very empowering uh, narrative where the, the, the woman in, at the crux who does not have any agency in, in many of the uh, many of the iterations or is some sort of evil slut, as you have said. Uh, is given this autonomy and this agency, and is given this new life, and it and it feels I, I, one of the things I'm just most proud of for STC producing this is that that this fits the the goal and the theme yeah. of the the festival.
1: I think it, it was a really perfect perfect match. I totally agree. Um, though I would say, I think you know, in, in part, this happened because of the festival, but I think it would have happened anyway oh yes certainly and it seems as much as you know I and here here is my love letter to an old white man um, I really love and respect Michael Kahn Mm -hmm. as an artistic director because the way you talked about him allowing her to take this challenge that's what he does with his directors Mm -hmm. I mean he believes so strongly in a director's voice and vision that he gives them full autonomy and authority to create and so I think you know he did it not because it was a women's voices, not because of any of that. It's because when he finds an artist he respects, he allows them the space to create. And you know, as an artistic director, he usually doesn't come in until the last few design runs or mm-hmm. even till tech to give his notes. Um, it's it really is incredible to me how much he trusts his artists and it's to the point that sometimes i'm like if i was an artistic director would i go that far but then (laughs) i i i wish i could say i would you know i think yeah i think he what he does is inspiring Uh um and a lot of artistic directors don't go that far and don't have as much trust and i think we see this and we will see this over the next few years um as the series of um plays directed by young directors comes out this year with Ed Iskander directing Teaming of the Shrew this summer mm-hmm. and then for the next two years following there are other young directors who he's targeted to give opportunities to um, and it's because and I, I realize I just sound like you know the,
2: the, the Michael <laughs> Kahn fan girl right <laughs> I
1: know but he's really phenomenal Um and it's just it's going to be really interesting to see what they do. And it's in part because he was given that chance by Joe Papp. Mm. And I think he's also very interested, and I'm going to unofficially speak for him right now, and I'm sorry, <laughs> Michael, if, if you would disagree. But or if you I, listen at all. all right. But if you listen, I think you would agree. <laughs> um, I think he's very interested in continuing having women's voices oh, yes. involved in years to come. and, and And I think we we will see, I know we will see in future seasons, you know, that that to continue. And um,
2: this doesn't feel like the token. And
1: I will say, uh, I don't think anyone realized it, but we have two women's voices this season because Kiss Me Kate was written by Bella Spiewak. Oh, so come on <laughs> let's give credit where credit's due we have two female playwrights this season
0: well one of the things that uh, and, and this is uh, this is a, i think this is a great place to end uh, to bring that conversation um full circle because one of the reasons i wanted to do this podcast particularly about this show was when i saw it uh it struck me immediately as the kind of in resource intensive artistic gamble that you would love to see as a reward for your importance of being earnest. (laughs) (laughs) Which, while a lovely, enjoyable play... uh, Well,
1: but this is is the Oscar Wilde conundrum, right? That Oscar (laughs) Wilde can write something that's as challenging as his Salome. Yes. And as perfect as his importance of being earnest. And for those who didn't see the production of Importance of Being Earnest, that production was perfect. Really good, yeah. It was absolutely every second crafted perfect beautiful
0: it was all of those things and yet and yet. it is an entertainment a good one a really good one and there are i mean
1: well and it is it is not theatrical in the way also that true is also true i think very true there's that's a, the big difference that's also true
0: yeah. um so yeah it's a it was a, a play that i was proud to be a part of at the end i was glad to see do mm-hmm. something that Artistically bold, which is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I, I. That's why I like working here. <laughs> Thank you, Michael Kahn, for giving me a job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I really do mean that. I yeah. love, I love being a part of the Shakespeare Theater because of that. And you know, and I grew up coming to the Shakespeare Theater, and I think that it's, it's easy if you only see one show a year, or just look at you know the list of shows to right. think. Oh, this is just a regional theater doing this, you know, standard repertory of all the greatest hits, you know. Um but it's never been just that. It's always been interested in how you tell the stories and how artists can create something new out of old texts. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the number of um, commissioned adaptations that we do you know it's certainly unique for a Shakespeare theater um, and productions like you know the the um, King Lear that was done the Stacey Keach King Lear mm. that was so amazing and different and powerful and disturbing um, the, you know I saw years and years and years ago the casino royale and, and not casino royale um what's it called the the tennessee williams play that i'm blanking on that i just called by the oh <laughs> the um, james, james bond. bond movie which I, is not I, what I, mean. I
2: would see the shakespeare annotation of casino royale. <laughs> no right no,
0: it's a casa
1: no 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 it's um camino royale camino royale yes yeah i'm like it's kind of yes. see and yes. royale I mean, Royale. I mean, that was just, I mean, that's a crazy play. Yeah. Um, and that was amazing. So I, I think, you know, that there's there's a lot to what this theater does and and how they do the productions. And, you know, I, I'm going to do my shameless plug for the rest of the season. It is the time for yes. that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think we will see that over and over again. I mean, even Kiss Me Kate of all the, like, most yes. traditional musicals, musicaliest of musicals, um, they are looking at it from the ground up. We have permission to reorchestrate. Oh. And yeah. so the, this production of Kiss Me Kate will be unlike any other production yeah. of Kiss Me Kate. Al- Alan
2: Paul is doing it, you know it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Going, in a good way.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be really fascinating. Um and beautiful and everything you want out of a nineteen forties musical well. plus as exciting I hope, as it would have been to go and see it in the nineteen forties, that it will feel that new and alive. Um, our Othello is gonna, you know, further this conversation of the Middle East, because we have a Middle Eastern man playing Othello. Mm. You know, rather than having an African American man, which is the way we typically see that role now, it's gonna really shift how we look at, you mm-hmm. know, inside and outside and and Racial tensions in this country today, and I'm just fascinated to see where where that goes and how that gets created and then talked about. Um, you know, we have in our silly our silly comedies, in the critic and the real Inspector Hound. With the critic, we have a new adaptation of a Sheridan play, um, and then when we're gonna in 1984, which is just gonna blow the socks off of everybody. Yeah. It's so cool. Um, And then we're going to close out the season with Ed Iskander doing his thing to Taming of the Shrew. And I've been lucky enough to see his work before. And, you know, I saw his play, The Seven Sicknesses, in an early stage before it was in a theater when it was just in a loft. And what I remember of that was sitting on the floor for uh, however long it was, six hours, four hours? Wow but having a break in between where they fed you soup, <laughs> you know, and, that, and that's really his thing, is like getting, making the audience part of a communal experience. Mm. And, and I know he's interested in exploring those lines with this production also to see how he did that. I mean, he did that on such a small scale, yeah. both in this loft and then at the give Flea Theater. The so, <laughs> right, give him the harmony. That's right, give him the harmony. How do you do that? How do you take an audience of 700 people and make them feel intimate? and part of yeah. an event, which is, you know, it's, I think it's thrilling. I'm, I'm so excited to see the rest of the season. I'm, I get a gold star.
0: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. All right, anything for you? Anything to plug?
2: Uh, come see the show and say hi. I, <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm going <laughs> to put this out
0: faster than normal so that we have yeah. enough time. It runs through November 8th, and today is the 28th, so hopefully you'll yeah. be up.
1: And I'll say there are post-show discussions following every single evening performance, Correct. which is... Yeah. We haven't mentioned, but that is um, new for yes. this theater. This is the first time we've done that, and maybe the only time. Or if we do another show that warrants it, maybe we'll we'll do this again. But so far, it's been a really exciting um, opportunity to talk to audiences.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's been it's been terrific. This is the sort of show that um, that that really works for
1: and luckily it's a short enough show so we're yeah, not keeping saying, yeah. oh yeah there. Oh, that's, so much yeah, later yeah. than normal maybe we
2: can plug this too it's 90 minutes and no <laughs> intermission so if you've got a hot date afterwards come see salome <laughs> <laughs> or bring well, your date to yeah salome. well i it depends on what kind of date i suppose <laughs> <laughs>
1: there'd be plenty to talk about afterwards there there would certainly would be. Be. <laughs> yeah.
2: thank you guys for taking me
0: up on my twitter invitation to talk about this show there was a uh, Yeah, there's a lot to talk about, and we didn't even touch on all of it. So thank you very much for this uh, conversation. I look forward to having another one with
1: both of you later.
2: Thank you for having us. Thank
1: you.